So Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14 is our text this morning. If you uh, open your Bibles and I'll be reading it to you. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is God's word to us. Now when I was a kid, uh, Barney came out when I was a young child. And it was really popular. And I loved to watch Barney. I watched it all the time. I loved how the purple T-Rex, Barney, uh, and his green and yellow Triceratops friends uh, would play with the kids. And they would play with kids, and they would teach moral lessons and sing long songs, and it was great. And you know the Barney song, how it goes. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family, with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? Right? And I love that song. And I love that show. And then one day a friend of mine who was a little bit older than me came over and he saw that I was watching Barney. And he said, you still watch Barney? And I was like, no. No, I don't watch that. And so I stopped. But by the time I was in third grade, a few years later, uh, Jurassic Park came out. And that was what everybody was watching now. And, uh, you know, that's a story where dinosaurs and humans interact, but they give very different kinds of hugs and very different kinds of of kisses. And eventually I watched that movie and I realized that the real world is very different from Barney. It is, uh, you wish to eat me, so I'm going to stop you. I'm going to kill you before you can kill me. This is the real world. It's a Jurassic kind of world. It's not Barney land, is what I told myself when I was in third grade. That's real life. See, we don't live in a Barney land. The world's a Jurassic world, is what we say. And so when we hear Jesus' command here, basically to, to love others as you love yourself, we think maybe that's naive. That's, that's like Barney. Don't you know what the world is like? We know that the world is an eat-or-be-eaten kind of world. But Jesus is saying here that this very commandment summarizes the very heart of God's law. And we see how this law is actually going to be fulfilled. It's fulfilled by Christ and how we actually can keep it. And we also see in this passage how this is a guide for us to meditate on our future life, on the future kingdom. And so it is not a Barney, nor is it a Jurassic world, but it is about living in Christ's kingdom and His kingdom that is to come. And so as we look at this passage, the first thing that it says is uh, that we look at this as a summary command. And the command, he says here, is whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. At this point, Jesus is saying that the essence and the very heart of the law and the very prophets who attest to the law, who encourage us to live according to the law, that the very essence of it is the action of doing to others as we want them to do to us. This, this verse is also summarizing so far everything that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount. It forms this sandwich, this inclusio with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I did not, uh, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. And so then he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is where he is concluding his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and it is summarizing it. So to conclude his teaching, Jesus is giving us a pithy statement that gets at the very essence of life in the kingdom of God. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So in a sense, when we're considering the Sermon on the Mount and we're considering its applications in our life, how do we live in Christ's kingdom, he says this is the summary. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Summaries can be very helpful in our daily situation, and that's what what Jesus is, in a way, getting at, to epitomize and help us in our daily life to apply this Sermon on the Mount. Summaries are helpful. You know, there's this show that, uh, another kid's show that came out called uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. And Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is based off of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And in uh, Daniel's Tiger's Neighborhood, it's, they go through these episodes trying to learn how to live daily life and be a good neighbor. And, and they learn daily lessons. And in each of the lessons, there's a statement that is a pithy statement that is stated over and over and over again. And it's actually sung. So, for example, one time, Daniel Tiger's parents go on a date. And Daniel Tiger's afraid. And so the the theme of the song is, Grown-ups, come back. And so it sings it over again, over and over and over again. And so I get it stuck in my head when my daughter is, you know, separation anxiety. Grown-ups, come back. Or another one, when Daniel Tiger's learning how to go to the restroom. It's, when you need to go potty, stop. Go right away. Wash and flush and be on your way. And the problem is these things get stuck in your mind over and over again. And so even I start thinking of those things in daily situations. See, Jesus is giving us a pithy statement that summarizes his very teaching here on life in his kingdom. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the summary that epitomizes the law. And now what we see, we oftentimes hear this called the golden rule. This epitome, this summary. Um, your, your Bibles may have a heading that says this is the golden rule. Now the golden rule you may recognize is, is actually better than the silver rule. Gold is better than silver, we know. Right? And the silver rule, if you understand what the silver rule is, oftentimes stated in various texts. In, in, in Tobit, it's believed in Zoroastrianism, Confucianism. It's stated this way. The silver rule is, whatever is disagreeable to yourself, do not do to others. And this is the way we oftentimes think about ethics and morality. 
is to not do to others the things that we don't want them to do to us. We oftentimes think this is how the Bible's commandments are, are meant to be understood. For example, the Ten Commandments are stated in this way. You shall not steal, for example. Now, the, it is the, the silver rule that is stated in the negative. Don't do these things to other people that you don't want them to do and to you. But the golden rule is stated in the positive. So the silver rule would be, look, if you, you would hate to have your computer stolen if you're at a coffee shop and you go to the bathroom and you come back and you, you find it's missing. You would hate that. So don't steal somebody else's computer, basically. That's the silver rule. But in, as, as uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, in that form, in the negative, stated in the negative, the silver rule is always going to be less demanding. It forbids action. It does not prescribe positive action. It sets limits. You shall not do this. But the golden rule and, and the command that Jesus sets out here is stated in the positive that in all things, is what he is saying, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And what Jesus is saying actually is that the Ten Commandments, the law, and even the Sermon on the Mount, that it's meant to be fitting in the golden rule of actually positive action that we're supposed to do to one another. Do you think about the golden uh, rule as it fits with the commandment, you shall not steal. So rather than stealing, we're supposed to be generosity. What's the op- generous? What's the opposite of stealing? It's, well, it's, it's not stealing, but more than that, it's, it's generosity. It's overflowing generosity because we would appreciate when people are generous to us. So we ought to be generous to those around us. Not only am I not to steal, but I am supposed to be generous because I appreciate when people are generous to me. Or, take the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. We don't want to gossip and slander people, is what we're saying. But not only in do we not want people to uh, gossip about us or slander us? What is it that we wish for people to do for us? What is it that you, the way you wish your spouse to talk about you? To speak the truth in love in ways that build you up. And if this is how you want people to speak about you, you ought to speak the truth in love about others. This is what it is saying. And one thing that we should notice is that this is radically ordinary. This is everyday life. It's considering and thinking about others' basic needs and even their longings. It's very ordinary. In the gospel that comes with with a house key, Rosario Butterfield, she talks about radically ordinary hospitality. And she says that her husband, Kent, and I practice daily radical uh, hospitality because we must. Because we know, we remember what it's like to be lonely. We know what it's like to be lonely and and, and have needs. And so why do we practice hospitality? 
Because other people need to be filled up. Why do we receive hospitality? Because we need to be filled up. To receive it. It's radically ordinary. Think about, how does Jesus actually love others as himself? How did he actually go about doing to others the very things that he wanted them to do to himself? What did he do? Well, yes, he preached the gospel where he went. But the other things he did was he, you know, he healed people. He cast out demons and he ate with sinners. Now, I'm pretty sure that you can do at least one of those things. He ate with sinners. This is so ordinary. And this is what he did. He, he was a host to people who were not like him. He sat down and had a meal with people who were hurting and lonely and he left them full. One time, my parents hosted a woman uh, in their house who hated Christianity. Uh, I've told you maybe about her before. She was a Unitarian, Universalist, lesbian, cat lady, raged against Christians. And my mom befriended her and would talk to her weekly because this woman was deeply lonely. And so what do you do unto others as they would do unto you in that situation, you care about them. You bring them into a relationship with you. And she was lonely. And one day my uh, brother was, she was watching a movie and my brother came up to her who has, my brother has autism and he sat down on the couch with her while she was watching her movie and grabbed her hand and held hands with this woman and just watched the movie with her. What would he have wanted somebody to do? When he's lonely, when you're lonely, you just want somebody to be there with you. See, this is a form of hospitality. And this is the, the sense where this command is so ordinary and so every day. It's befriending a lonely, difficult person and holding their hand while watching a movie. That's doing to others as you would have them do to you. In some ways we think, this is so ordinary, this is so basic, we might say, well, every other religion has this same exact kind of idea. They have the golden rule or the silver rule in some area. Not only that, it's just good, basic, pragmatic ethics and morality. I mean, think about it. What parent in the world doesn't use the gold or silver rule with their kids? You know, one kid hits the other one, and the other one hits the other one. And you say, you don't want to be hit on the head by a pot. So don't do that to the other. Don't do that to your kid. That's common sense. Is this what we're talking about? And why... this This shows up in so many places. It's just... And we say sometimes maybe it's just pragmatic. Well, we might say the fact that the golden rule or the silver rule shows up almost universally in humanity is not a sign uh, that Christianity is false, but it's actually this idea that we could say God is the one who created us in His image, in a moral image. And so we have uh, this sense of morality, this Christianity that looks at the prevalence of this morality and we say this is actually because humans are made in the image of God. And if you may embrace Christianity primarily because of our moral principles, because we have a good golden rule, why not just consider Buddhism? Or why not consider any other religion? 
Or you could follow my favorite pragmatist, Jiminy Cricket, who says, give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. See, if, it, if, if, it, if it's just about our pragmatic ethics or it's just about the golden rule, you could go somewhere else. What makes, yes, our distinct ethics of self-denial are important for the sake of others. It's important. But what we believe makes Christianity unique, what makes it true, is that Jesus himself is the one who denied himself and went to the cross for our sin. He is the one who perfectly followed this law. And so we think about how this law is fulfilled, and this is what makes our faith separate and distinct and true. It's how Christ fulfilled the law and then how the law is fulfilled in us, how we can actually be empowered to keep this. And so first you look at the, how the law is fulfilled by Christ. You see, this passage is a conclusion of what Jesus has first said in Matthew 5.17 where he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, rather I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. And so you think about it. What is the proof for us that Jesus actually fulfilled this law? What is the proof for us that He fulfilled the law and the prophets? The ultimate proof that we have is the resurrection of Christ. That He rose from the dead. As Hebrews tells us, it is His indestructible life. That He became our priest and He forgives us of our sins and mediates our relationship with God. This is the proof that He fulfilled the law. This law summarized in the Golden Rule. The rapper Shai Lin, you may have heard of him, he, he states it pretty directly about what, how this makes Christ distinct. He says in his, one of his songs, Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche and Darwin are dead, however, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Hari Selassie are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead, however, Jesus is alive. To consider that some of these figures, Buddha or all these other people, ethicists, have stated this golden rule or the silver rule in various ways and may have even kept it well. But the claim of Christianity is that they are dead and Jesus is alive. He's alive because He fully kept this law. He fulfilled it. His resurrection is our proof that He fulfilled the law and is set apart from other religious figures and philosophers. And so what does it mean then that He actually fulfilled this law? That He actually fulfilled it? Well, in summary way, We're saying that Jesus fulfilling the law means that He always did to others what He would have them do to Him. Not only did He not do the things that were prohibited, but He brought life. He kept all the positive commands. He was generous. He spoke the truth in love. It's the totality of Jesus' fully obedient life that pleased God and it culminated in His obedience to Him on the cross. So in Jesus fulfilling the law, we call this His active obedience. 
He perfectly kept the law. He fully did. He didn't do any of the negative prohibitions. And he did everything commended in, commended in it. He actually did to others the very things that he would have them do to himself. He loved others as himself perfectly. And in his life culminating on the cross, not only that, he fulfilled the law this way. He suffered. He suffered as a penalty, as a sin breaker, as a, a, as a breaker of the law. And he ultimately bore the penalty of sin, the law breaking, that he died. He was the one who was cut off and paid the full consequences for what we did in failing to love God and our neighbors. This is his passive obedience. And so Jesus fulfilled the law by actively being obedient to it, but also by passively being obedient and bearing the punishment for our sin. This is how Jesus fulfills the law. And so the good news here for you and me is that this Jesus who is alive, that when you and I, when we have faith in Him, and we are united to Him, all of His active obedience is counted as yours and mine. You are considered as one who is completely righteous. His righteousness, His obedience, His law-keeping, His keeping the golden rule is said to be yours. And He bore for you the sin that you deserved in not keeping the the rule. See, this is the key about the Gospel. It's not that when Jesus dies on the cross and He raises again, we're just forgiven and brought back to morally zero and now it's time for you to try to be a good person and then God will be happy with you. No, it's not that. All of Christ's righteousness, all of Him fulfilling the law is counted as if it was yours. And so when God looks at you by faith, In Jesus, He sees one who perfectly kept this law. He sees one who keeps the golden rule. This is how He counts you. And so what you see then that Jesus kept the law and by faith in Him, you have a new relationship to God. To God. And so God, who is the judge of the universe, this judge, He now becomes your Father. And this knowledge of this new relationship to having God as your Father, this empowers our obedience to this law. And this is how we start to actually keep this law in our own life. And we may say, well, great. Now I have a a judge for a father. I have a judgy father. No, this is not what we're saying here. It's, It's that... We've been saying, as we've been saying, and as Jesus has been saying, as Manuel has been saying, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, is that you have a Heavenly Father who loves you just as He loves His Son Christ. And as Jesus, as He said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says this of you. And so you have a Heavenly Father who loves you unconditionally. And He gives us good gifts. He gives us good gifts. And this is the immediate context of this passage of the golden rule. You notice right before it, in Matthew 7, verses 11 and 12, he says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven 
give good gifts to those who ask Him. And the version in in Luke, it adds another statement which says that specifically the good gift that He gives us is the gift of His Holy Spirit. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us greater empowerment and desire to keep this law that we've been talking about. Is this a a completely illogical non-sequitur? Jesus says, you have a Father who, who gives you good gifts? And then say, and now we're going to talk about something different. The golden rule. No. This is deeply connected. What comes right before is deeply connected to how we can actually keep this law. It is the Holy Spirit who is the gift of the Father. And the Son who empowers us to be able to actually do this. See the command, the golden rule, whatever we wish others would do to us, that we do unto them. This is the, what we're talking about here is just self-denial. We're talking about the life of self-denial for the sake of others. And self-denial does not come to us naturally, does it? It does not. Especially in our sin nature. And what it takes for us to deny ourselves for the sake of others, it is the spiritual enablement of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Galatians 5 is talking about, what we read. See, Paul is arguing against the legalistic Judaizers. He says in verse 18, Look, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and on and on. Against such things there is no law. You see, as the Holy Spirit works in your life, as He works in our life to grow in us love, the fruit of the Spirit, including love for others, God has no law against that. God has no law against the fruit of the Spirit of love, of loving others as you love yourself, because that's the very goal of the law. And this is what the Holy Spirit works in our life. He works that fruit of the Spirit of love in our life. The question that we ask is, how does the Holy Spirit grow in us this self-denying love for others? What does the Holy Spirit actually do to grow this love. He does not do this. He does not whisper to you, you know what? You should love yourself more than you can love others. See, the Holy Spirit does not tell us that it is to love, we need to love ourselves more so that we can then love others. I know that this is sometimes the way we have put it in Christianity. You may have seen uh, the show Parks and Rec. And in the show Parks and Rec, there's these two characters, uh, two workers on the Parks and Rec team. One, one's name is Tom Haverford, and the other one is Donna Meagle, who is really quite a Madonna. And when one of them has a bad day, what they say to each other is always, Treat yourself! And so they treat themselves. They go for a day to the spa. They go for a day on the town. They go out and have fun, and they skip work. See, the Holy Spirit, God does not say, treat yourself. Then you will be able to treat others the way you want to be treated. This is not what the Holy Spirit does. You see, I understand uh, that we may sometimes want to say, I need to love myself before I love others the way I want to be loved. 
but I think that is deeply misguided. Yes, we may say, for example, that you enter a marriage with lots of emotional wounds, poor self-esteem, and bad habits, and if you ignore them, they will inhibit your marriage. But it is, to put more bluntly, to say that is basically saying the power for self-denial is as if it were self-love. But the power for self-denial is not to love yourself more. And this is not what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. See, what the statement, I need to love myself before I can love others the way I want to be loved, what it gets right is understanding that you do need to know that you are loved unconditionally in order to actually sacrifice and serve others and to love others. You do need to know that you are loved unconditionally. The problem is the source of love is wrong. The source of love is wrong. The power for self-denying love for others cannot be more love of myself. Rather, the power for self-denying love of others is the great knowledge of God's love for you. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are loved by God unconditionally, by God our Father. And therefore we can love others, sacrificing ourselves for them, putting their needs before ours. This is what Romans 5.5 says. God's, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit He has given to us. God's love poured out through the Spirit. He pours the knowledge of God's love for you. He inundates our hearts with the reminder that you are loved unconditionally by your Father. And with the power of that love, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit of love grows. And we can sacrifice ourselves and love others the way we want to be loved. This is the power. This is the power of keeping the golden rule. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we're also taught to meditate on our future life. You see this in verse 13 and 14. Jesus switches the context and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You see, Jesus is transitioning now to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses a picture of two gates and two paths. So in the context, the two gates and the two paths are best understood in reference to what he has just said. In the preceding verse, when Jesus has summarized the principle of kingdom life. He's he's summarized it. Now he's moving us to respond in following him or not. And in moving us to respond and moving us to decide how to respond, he warns us, do not be deceived about your decision. So Jesus says, imagine, you know, there are two paths. One path looks really awful. It's bumpy. It's lonely. It's dark. It's difficult. It smells like death. It's the path of suffering. It's the path of self-denial. 
This is the way of kingdom living as the disciples of kingdom Je- of King Jesus. And this path, this narrow path, this difficult way, it looks foolish. Denying yourself, loving others, it looks foolish. Now the other path is one of self-love and it looks comfortable. It looks nice. It has one of those flat airport escalators that moves along sideways and goes really fast and all you have to do is stand on it and it moves you. And at the end of this path is this big beautiful meadow and it looks like there's this nice rainbow sized gate and it looks really great and you think there's a pot of gold at the end of that, that rainbow for me. And Jesus tells us, do not be fooled. There is no pot of gold at the end of the path of self-love. If you can see from the other side of the gate, if you can see from the other side, then you will see that that path is actually a conveyor belt to the furnace. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not be fooled. Enter by the narrow gate of the two gates. You see, Jesus recognizes, and you and I recognize, that there are times when it appears that following Christ in His Lordship, in His Kingdom, and doing and following Him, it's not going to be worth it. It feels like that at times. Sometimes it feels like it's not worth the cost, that it can no vale la pena, right? It's not worth it. And Jesus is saying it is that you need to consider, and as Ferguson puts it, it's only when we see, when we live in light of the future, that we can make the right choices now. For appearances in any other light than the light of the future are bound to deceive. If you see from Jesus' perspective, from our future life, you can make the choice on what is the, the path to follow. I remember talking to a college student at EPCC, and he was struggling with his faith. And it came down to this, this thing of the one path looked really great, but the path of following Christ looked really hard. And he said, I don't understand why even though I follow Jesus, my life is so hard. And I, don't, and I look at other people who do whatever they want. They have fun, they party, they don't believe in God. They're selfish and they hate Him. And their life is so great. What's the point? And all of us have been there and we think that at times, and I, turned, I gave him Psalm 73 to read. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. He says, As for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept the law. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I remember when I was in seminary, in Boston, we attended a small church that had about 15, 20 people. And we would drive from the seminary to church. And as we would drive, there were mansions and mansions and mansions. And as we would go to church, people would come out on Sunday morning and they'd ride their bicycles. 
having fun on their bicycles, or they'd run on the road playing, having exercise, or they'd do Sunday brunch, and all these people in their mansions, in their wealthy lives, agnostic people, having fun, and I'm going to church with 15 people, and we made no money, and we lived on rice and beans. And I thought to myself, look at these people. They don't believe in God and they're always at ease and they grow in riches. And sometimes we just say, I just want to go on that path. And to our own hearts, what do we say when we envy the wide and easy path and we're even urged onto it? Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he turns his back from the city of destruction and he moves towards the narrow gate and he runs towards it and, and towards the heavenly city and he says, stops up his ears and he says, life, life, eternal life. Because he knows which path is the path to life. Well, think about it this way. What about those who actually do to others the very horrible things that they would never want done to themselves? And they grow rich, and they grow happy, and they grow at ease. What about the predators who eat their prey, and after eating their prey, they're fat and happy? Isn't it in a Jurassic world that we live in? What about the unjust who thrive? What about those who sell girls and boys into sex slavery and they prosper? What about the cartels who prosper at, and, and take advantage of refugees around the world and make them do forced labor? What about those who pre, kill the pre-born and the Christians who are martyred and those who do these things prosper? What about those situations? And those who do these things, we see them grow rich and happy. This is where we say, you see, Christianity is just Barney Land. It's just Barney Land, and we live in a Jurassic Park kind of world. The psalmist says when he thought about this in Psalm 73, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as their own clothing. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut throughout the earth. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. When I thought to understand this, it seemed wearisome until I went into the sanctuary of my God. Then I understood, I discerned their end, how they are destroyed in a moment. You see, Jesus says, the, wide, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. They say, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And if we trust Jesus at His Word, we can see the path of life and the path of destruction with perfect clarity. We can see it as if from hindsight. And so Jesus here, He's calling us in our life when we see the wide path and we see how the wicked prosper and we see these things. He's calling for us to meditate on our future life. See, the more we know that our best life is not now, but it is in the future, the more that we can spend ourselves for those 
around us. The more we know that our best life is yet to come, the more we can treat our enemies the way we would be treated rather than to treat them the way that they treat us. And this is one way that we remind ourselves of the narrow path. Calvin says, Christ's disciples will set their eyes on the day when the Lord will receive His faithful into the peace of His kingdom. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will clothe us in garments of glory and of gladness. He will feed us with the indescribable sweetness of His own pleasures. He will raise us to fellowship in His own lofty heights. And at last, He will grant us participation in His own happiness. But He will cast the wicked who have flourished on earth into utter disgrace. You see, the golden rule, the way of loving others as we love ourselves, this is not Barney naivety in a Jurassic kind of world. It is living now in the lordship of the king who reigns right now and whose kingdom will one day come. So let us pray.